Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Father, we are grateful this morning to have the chance to be together. We're grateful today for your word and for the chance to open it together. And we pray now that you would move by your spirit. We pray that you would expose things that we need to see. That you would help us to be pointed to the hope that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Do you remember the movie Wally? It's been a while now. I looked it up today and realized that it's been almost 10 years since that movie came out, um, which doesn't feel like it was that long ago to me, but I do remember it. Then I started thinking about it, and I do remember that um, we took Zoe to go see Wally, and she was two years old at the time. And taking it to, I was like, this is a cartoon, it'll be cute, and didn't realize that the first hour of the movie, there is zero dialogue. Um, and so mostly I had a two-year-old that was like running back and forth in the theater the entire time, completely disinterested. But if you remember Wally, there's a point where it finally shows it's, this, it's kind of a post-apocalyptic, you know, deserted earth that there's this one little robot left. Um, and, but then it, when you finally get introduced to what has happened to human beings, you see them on this super cruise through space and they don't have to move and they're in chairs that bring them their every desire and they, and, and they really what has happened is humanity has gotten too obese to be able to move anyway. And, and it's a brilliant commentary on, on what it looks like for us to completely live self-indulgent existences um, and, and what it looks like to, to end up in that kind of a place. What's amazing about that, though, is because it's such a brilliant commentary on, our, on hum, the human condition and on our hearts, but at the core, it actually reflects something real inside of us. Think about it. What do you think of what, when you think about what real freedom is? And maybe not when you think about it on a philosophical level where you're trying to understand and, and break down the idea of freedom, but, but when you just, your reactions personally, what does it mean to be free? I think for most of us, we think about freedom as life without restraints. And when we're restrained, when we have to have checks and balances in place in our lives or things that, that, we, uh, that we try to hold to or disciplines, those things can feel restrictive and we feel like we're not free. I mean, I get this. I, I love to eat and I love to eat all kinds of food. I have such joy in eating and, and I feel like I have to live perpetually on some kind of a diet and it feels like it's a lack of freedom. But reality is that living within our design, living as we're made to live, is where we can actually be free. It's been said by plenty of preachers that, that a fish is not free out of water. If we set a fish free from the confines of his aquatic existence, it's not gonna be better off for the fish. So what we're gonna look at today is the depth to which our affections shape us. And ultimately, that they don't just shape us, but our affections can reach a point where they even enslave us. 
But there's hope today. There's hope from, for freedom and freedom from idolatry. So we're in Galatians chapter four. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. Um, we're in a study of Galatians this fall that is looking through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, um, probably in the 50s AD, 40s or 50s AD. But we're also looking at it with a special eye toward the Protestant Reformation, which happened 500 years ago, the, the anniversary of Luther, Martin Luther nailing his theses to the church door in Wittenberg um, is just around the corner. It's on Halloween night. And so this year, I hope you're all ready to celebrate Halloween with a Reformation flair, um, dressed as monks. Um, but, but we're celebrating, looking back at the 500th anniversary of that, and so we're particularly taking an eye toward Galatians, at looking at how the same issues that were present in the first century were present still in the 1500s, are present still today, 500 years later, and, but we're looking to the reformers for a lot of help as we walk through this letter. So Galatians chapter 4, we're verses 8 to 20 this morning. <clears throat> it says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm in again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right off the top, the Apostle Paul here begins with some strong statements saying about the Galatians' existence before Christ and since Christ, that, that before they knew God through Jesus, they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's saying that they had come out of systems of idolatry, of, of worshiping gods in temples in the Roman and Greek systems of, of religion at the time. But what's striking here is that he goes on to say that they are enslaving themselves again, turning back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world again, and becoming enslaved to them, so that he gets to the point where he says, I might, I'm scared that I may have labored over you in vain. He's saying, all of my work might have been for nothing. What's amazing about that is that what he's saying is that the, what was happening in the Galatian churches is that they were turning back to the Old Covenant law, to the Old Testament law, and, and adding that in on top of Christ, and saying that it was required for the sake of becoming actually righteous, that their justification or right standing before God was based not only on Jesus, but on the fulfillment of the law. 
And so Paul is fighting against that legalism and and reintroduction of the old covenant law. And we see that in chapter two when he says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live by the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so Paul's saying if you turn back to the Old Testament law, to the Old Covenant, then you actually empty out the the effectiveness, the importance of what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection. Now when we get to chapter 4... He goes as far as to say that it's not just that, it's, that it turns back to empty, that it empties Christ's sacrifice, but that he now compares the law to idolatry, saying that it enslaves us. So what we see first today, if we're gonna, the hope today is that we'll have freedom from that slavery, freedom from idolatry. We see first that to not know God is slavery to idols. I think this can be hard for us at times, that understanding idolatry at the time, we can look back with a little bit of chronological snobbery and think those ancients, those people that lived in old times, they bowed down to statues, and how could you bow down to a statue? We know that statues are things that we fashion and make, and so, so that's not something we really wrestle with. I don't like go home at night and have a statue hidden in my closet that I pull out and say, okay, now I get to do this in secret. That's not something that, that I deal with, and so we can kind of push that away and ignore it and, and think that it's not a thing for us. But we need to understand the nature of idolatry and that it's more complex than that. The ancients didn't believe that the statue itself was a god. It was, it was a representation of that god to help direct their worship. And we do the same things now. Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote uh, his, uh, his large catechism to train his people in Christian theology And it started with a shrewd reflection on the first of the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments that we can look back to in the Old Covenant law, the first two were about idolatry and false gods. God said, you'll have no other gods before me and you shall not make idols. And so, so Luther's catechism starts with the question, what does this mean and how is it to be understood? What does to have a god mean or what is a god? And the answer he provided is this. A god is a term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we're to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I have often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that make both God and idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the, one, is the true one. Conversely, when your trust is false and wrong, there you do not have the true God, for these two belong together, faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say that is really your God. We need to hear this from Luther because for us, we might not have statues that we bow down to, but every one of us has things, people, pursuits that our hearts trust and rely on, that our ultimate hope is placed in. John Calvin, the reformer, said this. He said, from this we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Calvin's reflection was clear to say it's not just that we have one thing that we need to root out in our lives. If we, as soon as we come to understand that we've placed our ultimate hope in something that is insufficient, if we try to address that and cut that out of our lives, our hearts will immediately turn and find something else because we are a factory of idols. 
Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. See, the core of idolatry is an issue of worship. Worship, I think, gets confusing to us too. We've, we can over... Um, and we can, we can change the, we, we, have, we have trouble grasping what, the, what worship really is. And we can think about worship as being liturgical. So on Sundays, we gather as a church for worship. And so there is an element. We have a liturgy we walk through where we start with a call to worship and we sing and we have a confession and an assurance and we, we hear from God's word and we pray corporate prayers together and we, we, we give toward God's work in our midst and all of those aspects. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together weekly. These, those are all aspects of worship. But worship is not confined by or contained by this moment as we gather each week. Worship is ultimately an issue of affections. This is what Calvin and Luther were getting at. Where do we place our trust? Where is our hope located? What captures our affections? See, every one of us worships all the time, continuously. We're created to be worshipers. The only thing that changes person to person or moment to moment is the object of our affections. David Foster Wallace, a brilliant author, a cultural prophet that wasn't a Christian, recognized this. He said in a commencement address to Kenyon College back in 2005, he said, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid. A fraud always on the verge of being found out. The so-called real world hums along, merrily along in a pool of fear, anger, frustration and craving and worship of self. David Foster Wallace gets it. For us to understand what the Apostle Paul is getting at in this text and the enslavement to idolatry that he talks about, we need to understand this aspect of what worship really is. And the big problem in all of this is that we start to reflect, we become like the things that we worship. And Psalm 115 says this, that it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have, but listen to the description of idols here. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. And noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. And feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. This theme of idolatry and and reflecting the things that we worship and becoming like the things we worship is a thread that runs all the way through the biblical text from start to finish. It's something that we see in the call of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 as the prophet had a vision, was brought into God's presence, and and God comes before Isaiah and, and calls him to, you know, he cleanses him and then says, who will go for us? Whom will we send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And, and almost every time I hear that text taught, 
preachers stop there and say, see, when you encounter God's presence and holiness, you will, you will put yourself out to be able to, to be a part of his work and commit yourself to whatever he calls you to. And they don't keep reading. And he says, go and say to these people, keep hearing, but don't understand. Keep seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. And Isaiah says, how long, Lord? He says, until the cities lie in waste and without inhabitant, and the house of the people is a desolate wasteland. See, what God was calling Isaiah to was a ministry that, would be, that wouldn't be received by the people. God was saying that these people were turned over to their idolatry, that they were going to begin to reflect that they had walked away from him, that their ears would be dulled, their eyes would see but not perceive. This is why there's a repeated call throughout all of scripture. In Jesus' teaching, when Jesus would repeat over and over and over again, he who has ears, let him hear. We see that in, we, we walked through the seven churches in Revelation over the summer, and, and every church ends with, he who has ears, let him hear. What's being said there isn't if you have the ability to process audible sound, then hear these words. It's saying, it's, it's a prayer, saying, it's, a, it's a plea saying, saying, can your ears be unstopped by your own false worship so that you can for a moment hear the word of the one and only true God? The problem for us is that is, is often too, that the, when we think, so even if we get this idea of worship, even as we, if we understand this idea of idolatry and how it shapes us, we can look at these things and we can, even the list that, that David Foster Wallace cited as he went through it, and we go, well, I don't actually worship money. Like, I see what that looks like in people's lives, and I see the effect it has and how it shapes people. That's not me, and, and, and I don't worship power. I know what it looks like for people to wield power in evil ways, and I don't do something that's, that's blatantly wrong, and, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not that arrogant that I worship my own intellect, and so, no, and you're probably right. I'm probably way more subtle and crafty than that. I think most of us are. The problem is, though, that we take the good things in our lives, the gifts that God has given us, the things that are worthy of pursuit, and we lift those good things into an ultimate place so that those good things become our ultimate pursuit. Power in and of itself is not evil. And power is something that can be stewarded for great good. But we can take that and twist it. Money isn't evil. People misquote a Bible verse on that all the time and say, see, money's the root of all evil. No, it says money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's saying, it's saying yeah, it can get us there, but money itself isn't a bad thing. We need money to live. And money can be leveraged and stewarded to help others in generosity. These are good things, but when you elevate them to the ultimate place, it'll enslave us. And that's what we get at in Galatians chapter 4 today. That any worship of any false gods enslaves us. Now, Paul looks back with the Galatians and says, this is where you were in the past, that you worship those who are not actually God, and, and it enslaved you in idolatry. And he's saying, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how are you turning back again to these things? To weak and worthless elementary principles, whose slaves you want to be once more? saying I'm, he was scared that he was losing the Galatian churches, that they were walking away from Christ himself. And so what are the things that, that get to us? What are the, the, uh, the idolatries that get to us? I think as I was, walking, I was working through this, 
this past week. And for some of you, these are things that you've come to wrestle with because it's, it's become a, a more popularized Christian theological pursuit. Tim Keller wrote a book a few years ago called Counterfeit Gods, and everybody became an expert in idolatry that was in the Christian church. Um, and it, the book is like, it's one of these little tiny books. And I think everybody read it and went, yes, I can now assess everyone else's idols. Um, what I want to be able to help you with today is, that, is a realization that when we talk about these things, the only real posture we can have is to, try, is to plead with God that he would unstop our ears, that he would open our eyes, that he would, he would soften and tenderize our hearts and expose things within us. If we turn this to hunting for other people's idolatries, we've completely misconstrued things. And ultimately, that's showing a worship of ourselves, thinking that we're in the place of God. We can only see things outwardly. It's only God who knows our hearts. But my hope today is that for every one of us, this will be more of a self-assessment. As we do that, there's, there's four root idols that Keller talks about in that book, Counterfeit Gods. He talks about an idol of power, control, comfort, and approval. Power is a longing for influence or recognition. That's something that all of us have at some level, a longing for influence or recognition. It can be for the purest of motives. Lord, give me more influence so that I can point people to you. But in the core, we can still want to make our own name great. An idol of control is a longing to have everything go according to my plan. You guys ever feel like you want things to just go the way that you planned them to? And when they don't, you just don't know how to cope with it. The thing that drives you most crazy about the people around you is when they just don't do what you think they ought to do. When you give advice to people and they go and do the opposite thing and then you're like, yeah, your life fell apart. I saw it coming. The idol of control is a longing to have everything go according to our plan. The idol of comfort is a longing for pleasure. That's the super cruise in Wally. I just want everything to be comfortable. And the idol of approval is a longing to be accepted or desired. Now, all four of these are things that tug at every one of us, if we're honest. And, but but I, as I wrestled with this, I wanted to get to the bottom of what are, how do we see this actually play itself out? What are some more practical ways that I see this in my own life and that maybe you would see this in your life? And how does it enslave us? And so one way to think about this is that every one of us has functional heavens, ideals, the goal, what do we need to get to and everything would finally be all right? And then what it is that you leverage to get there, that becomes your functional savior. And so the true heaven is eternity in God's presence when you, when you are with him forever, with no sin and no evil and no sorrow and no sickness, no death, the eternity that's promised us in the new heavens and the new earth. Our, the only way for us to get there and receive right standing before God is through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel is that it's in Christ that we're able to, to, that it's his sacrifice for us that gives us the opportunity to come into God's presence and in relationship with him that way. But we substitute lesser things there. So it works like this. For some of us, for some of you, your functional heaven might be community. You think if I just had the right kind of community around me, then everything would be fine. I, 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 would, I wouldn't have any real str struggles, or the struggles I do have, I would have the perfect support network around me, and everyone around me would be able to, to come alongside me, and, and it would be just, it, that would be, that's what I'm looking for. That's what's missing in my life. And so our functional saviors become our friends. We place on them the weight of, being, of stepping in perfectly as our support. 
Um, Keller has said that there's never been a generation of people more aware of their need for community and less willing to sacrifice for it. Because when it becomes our functional heaven, we need others to sacrifice for us to get us there. Maybe it's not, maybe it's more specific than that. For some of you, your functional heaven is a good marriage. You think, I, that would, that's all I need in my life. This relationship with my spouse, for our marriage to be good and strong, everything else can crumble. But if my marriage is good, if we're on good terms with each other, then everything's fine. And you have to be careful because then your functional savior becomes your spouse. You can't deal with it when you get in a fight because it, it shakes the foundation of what you're counting on. Maybe it's kids. When things crumble in community or in, 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 if you're married and things are hard in your marriage, then we can still turn toward our children and look at our children and say, well, I have my children, so all, we place all of our hope and trust in our children. And so we, we look at their lives and their achievements and their academics and their athletics and start to place our hope and trust in our children and our children become our functional saviors. You see, every one of those, though, community and marriage and, and our children, our families, all of those functional heavens will enslave us to the idol of approval. It's, it's a longing to be accepted that's driving those things and being able to count on, well, at least if everything else crumbles, I know that I'm approved and accepted in this sphere. And so then the way that enslaves us is that we start to live and act and you get to a point where you feel like you're play acting through your whole life. Have you ever felt that way? Where things have gotten hard in some of your closest relationships and so every relationship you have, you start to feel like you're walking on eggshells all the time. I don't wanna mess up. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna say the wrong thing. I don't wanna offend. I don't wanna, I don't wanna cause more conflict. I can't deal with that in my life because, because if this relationship goes south, then I will have nothing left. That's no way to live. There's hope for us today. Maybe that's not it for you. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's income level. You ever feel that way? No matter how much money you make, the place that you'll be comfortable is always just a little bit higher. If I just had a little bit more, if I could just add another zero, everything would be fine. And so in that, we start to see our work as our savior. I'm gonna achieve, I'm gonna earn it, I'm gonna, nothing's gonna be given to me, I'm gonna be self-made and I'm gonna earn my way there and I'm gonna do more work, I'm gonna work harder, I'm gonna work smarter, I'm gonna work longer hours because I'm gonna achieve that level of income. Or maybe, it's, maybe it's, it's recognition, that you want that level of influence and people to know what you've done and to be able to see what you've done and recognize who you are. And, and so if, in, in, in that search for recognition, that, that search for, for power, you start to view people around you as, as part of your way to get there, rather than as those who bear the image and likeness of God and have inherent dignity. Maybe it's peace and a freedom from conflict and an inner peace that you're pursuing. And so there's all kinds of escapes we can turn to. But for every one of those, it enslaves us to an idol of comfort. It's pursuing pleasure. You get trapped with this, this feeling that you've got to do just a little bit more, get a little bit more, see a little bit more come through so that you don't have to suffer anymore. So that you don't have to be afraid anymore so that you can be comfortable and have pleasure 
and not fear. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it, it, this happens in, in Christian lives too, where we can idolize good, again, the good pursuits that we're called to. So if you're a Christian who's been in the church for a while, sometimes Christian maturity can become our functional heaven. I want to be a mature Christian. I want to be, you know, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. The, the Apostle Paul here says, become as I am. How many of us would say that, have the, the gall to say that to the people around us in our church? Say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Become like I am. This is what, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. <laughs> Are we willing to say that? And so we think, you know what? My functional heaven is that I want to be able to say, become like me. I want to be the one that people look at in the church and go, that, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. I want to be like that. Now, on its own, it's a good pursuit to want to follow Jesus well enough that people should emulate your life and walk with Christ. That is a beautiful thing. But when that becomes our functional heaven, what happens is that we can start to leverage church programs and what our churches offer us or don't offer us as our functional saviors. Say, you know what? If I just had a church that did this, it would get me to where I need to be. If the people around me would just do this, if, if, if the preaching, if that preacher would just preach a little shorter and more application or less application or more theology or less theology, you know, he's got to stop quoting those reformers. They lived 500 years ago or he doesn't do enough of the, that quoting of reform, whatever it might be. If I become your functional savior, I'm going to let you down and it will not take long. Maybe our functional heaven becomes heaven. You ever thought about this? Sometimes we think about heaven as being that super cruise in Wally. We just gotta get there. When we get there, I won't have to do anything anymore. I'm gonna sit under a tree in the shade. I'm gonna have a glass of lemonade and sit and enjoy and not do anything for all of eternity. And our image of heaven leaves out the presence of Jesus. It's actually a reflection of our own desires. And so we start to think that our knowledge, our holiness, that we're gonna earn our way there and add in moralism and legalism on top so that we can get, just get there. Well, in all this, we're just in slavery to an idol of control. That if it would just go the way that I want it to go, then I would get what I need. Maybe it's your reputation or success. We can turn to all kinds of things that, are, that feed a desire for recognition and influence and power. So what is it? What is your core motivator? That's something I can't diagnose for you. That's something that I'm praying, is, and even coming in today, I've been pleading with God, God, will you move in our people's hearts so that they might see what is going on in their own hearts, what has actually enslaved them, and what drives them, or, or uh, that they would see, I mean, think about it this way, another way to think about it, what is it that when you have a moment that is, that is unproductive time, and you allow your mind to wander and daydream, what does it wander and daydream about? What is it in your life that if it was taken away, you don't know if you would want to go on? That gets to the core of these questions. Whole communities can buy into false systems for their, for their righteousness as well, though. That uh, We take the good gift, this is happening in Galatians, that they took the good gift God had given, the law that was given by God as, as a limiter a, to restrain human sin and bring about the Savior who would fulfill it perfectly. They took that and were reintroducing it and elevating it to gain their righteousness before God, even though it can't make us righteous. And we do the same today. 
Whole churches will fall into an idol of power, longing for influence and recognition. Today, I've been watching social media this week, it is mind-boggling to me that there are, there are megachurches this Sunday who are entertaining political pundits in their pulpits. They are preaching a kingdom of this world rather than of Christ. Good leaders are important, but they're not our saviors. There are churches that fall into an idol of control. Everything has to go the way we think it ought to go. And this is where we get people that turn into idolatry hunters and others. Saying, I've got to make sure that I manage your sanctification because we don't trust the spirit of God to do his job. We have whole churches that turn to an idol of comfort, a longing for pleasure, and they preach material prosperity as God's blessing rather than God's presence with us as his greatest gift to us. We have churches that preach idols of approval, that have abandoned any push to holiness, not willing to say that anything is actually sin, not willing to stand on the gospel. Redemption Hill, we must not fall into these false gospels. We will not. As Luther says, God will or can be known no other way than Christ. We believe in what it says in John 1, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. That we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. This is the essence of the gospel. This is what real Christianity is, is that is not slavery to our own idolatries and backing those things up, but instead what we see even back in Galatians is that to know God is to be known by God. This is, the, this is the purpose that we've been created for, is to, to bring glory to God alone. And, and it's only in faith, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that we come into relationship with him and can bring him glory. And this is in verse 9 where Paul says, now you have come to know God. He's saying, don't forget this to these Galatians. To these Galatians. He's saying, don't lose sight of this. You were enslaved, but you were freed. You've come to know God. And, and, and he, you see him kind of catch himself there theologically, right? That now you've come to know God, or, or rather to be known by God. Don't turn back to weak principles. Every one of us, we long at the depths of our souls to be known and to be loved, to be fully known and fully loved, knowing that that's something that we, that we don't have an experience of in our lives because we prop up a veneer that we know that we want people to love us so we won't show them who we really are because, because we're scared they won't. But then when we prop up that veneer, we know they don't really know me. We're terrified that if someone fully knows us, there's no way they could love us. And so the way that we try to, to ease our needs and desires to be known and to be loved are through those idolatries. It's by pursuing power. If I just got enough recognition, enough influence, I'd be there. It's through control and comfort and approval, but they all come up empty. So church, don't turn back to empty things. Don't get caught up, as it says in Galatians here, to, to months and days and seasons and years. You know, one of the most shocking things as we read Galatians is that what it looks like for Christians to slip 
is more often legalism than license. But look at the corrective Paul gave. It's not about our knowledge and pursuit. We are known by God. It's his work, it's his knowledge, it's his pursuit. It's all about him because if it wasn't, it wouldn't be all for his glory. That's why we get called the grace of God because we can't earn it, it's a gift. And it's so hard for us to receive grace. I've told this story before, and so you may have heard it. If you're newer, you probably haven't, that's fine. But, but one of the, the, this town does not know how to receive grace. I think everybody's scared in this town that, that nobody wants anybody to have anything on them ever. And so this came out most clearly to me when our kids had a lemonade stand, for real. We had a lemonade stand and, and our kids were like raking in cash, it was embarrassing. Like we provided the supplies for lemonade and people were just forking over money on a hot summer day walking by our house. We live just a few blocks from here so it's densely populated but like commuters coming back home, they were just, they were looking for ways to give our kids, like it was embarrassing. And, but there were a few neighbors that walked by as our kids were just raking in cash, I mean in kid terms raking in cash, we're not talking thousands of dollars here, we're talking like, like how did you get $45? <laughs> if, you, if you have grade school kids you understand how much that is. And, and so, from a lemonade stand. And so we had a few neighbors come by and we, we said, here's, you know, just take a couple of lemonade. They were like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, a lot of people, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have cash. You know, in, in, which I don't carry cash either, I get it. And so, were, I don't have cash. We're like, come on, just take a couple of lemonade. Look, they're doing fine, we got a pile of change back here. Take a couple of lemonade. There were multiple people, friends of ours, people we know that live within a couple blocks of us that within the next couple of days slid envelopes through the mail slot in our door with their 50 cents for the cup of lemonade. Unable to receive grace. Unable to just say thank you. Needing to make sure that the accounts were even, that things were taken care of, that they had earned their way. That's what every one of us does. We need to rest today in what we read and what God has done for us in Christ is what Ezekiel and the prophets looked ahead to. As the promise came that this is what, this is what God does for us. If we turn to Christ in belief and repentance, he, he had prophesied and looked ahead and said, the time is coming when I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the, what has happened. The grace of God to us is he has replaced our hearts and, get, and frees us from enslavement to the idolatries of our soul. That's the hope we have in the gospel, the hope we have in freedom in Christ. Now, real quick, the Galatians here were recognizing days and seasons and months, and, and I've, I've heard the pushback, well, what about us? And we recognize we gather every Sunday. Is that legalistic? We have traditions. We celebrate Christmas and Easter. This last year, we did this like whole Lent season thing. Does that, does that mean we're falling into this kind of legalism? And I think Luther can help us here. Luther said, we chiefly observe such feasts to the end that the ministry of the word may be preserved that the people may assemble themselves at certain days and times to hear God's word, that to come to a knowledge of God, to have communion and pray for all necessities and give thanks to God for all of his benefits. But here's the key, we burden not consciences with these ceremonies, neither teach as the false apostles did that they're necessary for righteousness or that we can make sanctification for your sins by them. 
but we keep them to the end that they all may be done in an orderly way in the church. So listen, church, to know God is to be known by God. And the final, the third point we have today is that to know, be known by God is to have Christ formed in you. Do you see that that's what Paul gets to? This is the first command we see in the whole letter to the Galatian church. He says, become as I am. This is a turning point in the letter. He's gone from proclaiming the glories and excellencies of Christ in the gospel. And, say, and now he says, all right, now there's some action. Follow me. Become as I am. And what's the goal? He says, he says to them, you know, I've come to you. And he gives the history of their relationship and says, now have I become your enemy by telling the truth? My little children, I'm in anguish again in the, of the anguish of childbirth until what? Until Christ is formed in you. This is the end goal. We're freed from slavery to our idols so that we can actually be known by God, so that we might know God. And the purpose of that, the goal of that, is that we might actually have Christ formed in us. That the image and likeness of God, which he has placed in us, that we are created in, will be reformed from its brokenness. That That we'll be able to reflect him with the beauty and glory of Christ himself. And so this is the importance now of the leaders that we follow. There's, I mean, Paul talks about two kinds of leaders. He says, listen, I've, I've become your enemy because I'm willing to tell you the truth. There were those in these churches that, that were, making, they were making much of the Galatians. In verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They were tickling the ears of the Galatian people. He warned this to a young pastor named Timothy. He said to him, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He said to this young pastor, as for you, be sober-minded. He's saying, keep your eyes out. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Do you think the Apostle Paul could have ever imagined the level to which we can accumulate teachers to tell us what our itching ears want to hear? We can have podcasts that are streamed in and automatically downloaded to our devices on a weekly basis so that we can get everything we want to hear. We, can, we end up idolizing leaders, and those we idolize eventually we will demonize because when they don't stroke our idol of approval, when we can't control them and they don't do things according to our plan, when they let us down and threaten our comfort, then and expose that they are not actually Jesus Christ, then we will turn on them. We need to be careful about how we choose the people we follow. We need to be, we need to be willing to follow people who are worthy of being emulated. People that, you, that we can say, you know what? I wanna follow that person as they follow Christ. Not because they're perfect, not because they've got it all figured out and they're never going to let me down, but because they're gonna point me to Jesus and he will never let me down. Do their lives reflect the ability, like Paul, to say, become like I am? Have they shown a willingness to endure and to suffer? And are they willing to tell us the truth? Church, there have never been prominent heretics who weren't lovable, nice people. That's how they get people to follow them. We want to be safe, though. We want likable people who tell us what we want to hear, and we, we get bristly when people tell us the truth. There's a comment here, too. If you're somebody who wants to lead, you need to see that this is what Christian leadership is. It's not a way to feed our idols of power and control, of comfort and approval. 
Leaders have an important role for us, but the ultimate goal for all of us, the ultimate source of our freedom, is to know God and be known by God, to have the image of Christ formed in us as his image and likeness shine through us. And so church, I'm out of time and I would love to keep going. (laughs) But here's the question. Are you just looking for a Wally super cruise in your life? That's a question only you can answer. I can't see your heart. I can only see the outward appearance. But whatever or whoever you turn to as your functional savior will always let you down. And it will not forgive you when you fail. But you can be free today. Jesus is the only savior who gave himself up for us. He's the only one that that knowing that we were hopeless and desperate on our own with nothing to offer him still gave himself up. He's the only one, the only savior in our lives who doesn't need us but has given himself up for us and, and we will let him down. You already have, and once you come to Christ, you're not going to live a perfect life. He, he knows that. He knows everything you've done and everything done to you in the past, in the present, and in the future, and still he loves you and has given himself up for you so that you can know him and be known by him now and forever. And to know Christ is to be known by God, and his spirit is, forms his image and likeness in us. So plead with God today that he might show you the idols of your own heart. Invite people around you to speak in as those things get exposed and say, hey, I think I'm seeing this. Do you see that? People that you trust as we walk with Christ together. But then realize that turning to those things feels good in the moment but will only capture us in slavery. Jesus breaks the chains and frees us to live. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We're grateful that you know us and still love us. We're grateful today that in your church we can be reminded again of the goodness of the actual gospel and be freed from being chained up by false gospels. Father, would you protect this church that we would proclaim only the grace that has been shown to us in Christ, grace upon grace, as the one who has shown who you truly are. And would you free us, Father, increasingly from the chains of our own sin and idolatry. We would be freed to live and, and freed to reflect your beauty and your glory and your majesty. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.